All right, thank you everyone for showing up. This is almost a full house, so that's awesome. As a brief intro, my name is Sherry Hu, and I write about the music industry for Forbes and Billboard. I actually just joined uh, Billboard as a contributing editor for their biz site, so I'm very glad to be here with this awesome panel. We'll be talking about all things data, and I'll very quickly get into what exactly that means since it's a very vague word uh, in the industry. But first, um, I was wondering if you guys could start off just with super quick intros about um, what you do, what brings you to SF Music Tech, and why you're here to talk about data. My name is Day Bogan, um, the co-founder and CEO of Tune Registry. Um, also have a company called Royalty Claim. Um, I am also a music industry educator. I'm a, music, a musicology lecturer at UCLA, and I teach as well at CSUN in the graduate program. Um, primarily, my world is music rights data for the DIY music community. Uh, primarily DIY artists, but also independent labels and publishers. Uh, Tune Registry, uh, we are a music rights and metadata hub uh, online for uh, independent artists and indie labels and publishers, and we help them organize and validate their metadata and rights information, and then we distribute that out to a very large network of partners, music rights organizations, data services, um, both of these data services on this panel. Um, and effectively, we help DIY musicians self-administer their rights, and we help label independent labels and publishers with the tool to do their administration. So uh, my perspective is primarily the DIY musician and independent music community and how data impacts their business. Yeah. Hi, Michael Jeffrey here from TiVo. And for those that may not know TiVo for just a moment, that's formerly known as Rovi or AMG, All Music Guide, um, or Muse, all the same, all a part of TiVo. I know when most people think of TiVo, they think of DVR. Uh, I do too. Um, I spend uh, quite a bit of time working with the industry, actually helping grow the music business. Great to see this uh, growth that's going on now, working directly with all of the large services and then a small number of uh, the startups and so forth, and then with others in the industry here. So we're a, a large aggregator that powers quite a bit of the, the industry. Um, my name's Kristen. I'm the CEO of Westcott Multimedia, which is an automated marketing uh, software company, uh, specifically focusing on uh, streaming data. And my most recent experience, uh, previous experience, was with Universal Music Group in their global streaming marketing department running playlist strategies. Uh, good morning, Scott Ryan, Global VP for Music for Gracenote. Um, similar to what MJ just mentioned, Gracenote's had a pretty, pretty remarkable trans transition the last couple of years from being a music-based company to aggregated alongside Tribune Media to now as part of Nielsen. So we're working in conjunction with our partners with uh, Nielsen and the Nielsen Music uh, Connect folks who catch a lot of the aggregation and consumption. Why we're really excited about this is because we're bringing consumption and discovery together. And those have been two very separate areas when it comes to talking about music data. We've talked quite a bit about music rights or the consumption concerns, and then in separate conversations, search discovery. So a few things we're really excited to talk about today in particular include areas where we're helping out in voice and for search and discovery. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, so like, what is data and what will we be talking about today? I think we can break it down into two parts. One is a higher level business strategy, which we'll be starting with, like how can we use data to 
make better decisions? Where do we get that data from? And then there's obviously a much deeper infrastructural issue of like what's the quality of the data that we're getting from various services and how can that improve in the near and also long-term future? Um, so I'd love to start first with a question of accessibility to data and that relates to a higher level um, business strategy question. So um, any of you can start off answering this. So what do you think is the best platform or best means for accessing consumer data both from either from like an indie or major label or also from a DIY artist perspective and also who are the most important gatekeepers for data about music today that we should be thinking about? Well, I think um, really where the consumption is occurring, so streaming platforms, uh, Sony, Apple, uh, Spotify, Apple, Pandora, um, when it comes to accessibility of data, it's really broken up between independents and majors. Um, so there's a huge dividing line in terms of access. For independents, I would say some of the best uh, data so far uh, from those companies comes from Apple Music Connect, Spotify Inti Insights, and Pandora Ampcast. Um, there's also direct-to-fan platforms uh, that have consumption on those platforms like Pledge Music, and they also provide uh, a platform on which to reach those customers. So that's definitely uh, a means for independents to access data. Because the majors are part shareholders in Apple and Spotify, they get increased access to information. So when it comes, so it, it's two different conversations really. For independents, it's the conversation is more on access to data. For with the majors, it's they have more granular data. So it comes down to what do you do with it? Um, how do you filter it? Um, what kind of machine learning uh, capabilities do you use to take all of this information and turn it into actionable uh, insights to uh, kind of drive business decisions? Anyone else have anything to add? Or I, I think just one thing to add to that is I think today I would agree, Kristen, the, the majors. Tomorrow, I think, just as a lead-in, I think we're going to see voice and voice uh, experiences growing increasingly. Everybody's familiar with the echo. Um, and I think we'll see discovery there, I think, come a much, much, much larger and, and things like independence and richer data and things like that will start coming out. So I think Amazon, while they might have the mind share today, I think all of the major services are, are looking at voice and, and implementing in the coming years. So I think access, uh, my hypothesis is, will open up rather dramatically with voice as the, the data and the experiences get better and better for, for people, humans. I think the good news, one more, <clears throat> one more thing in that zone, the good news is we've had some pretty significant data issues across the industry, whether it's aggregating data from so many different sources and trying to maintain continuity all the way through. And we've been able to get away with that in certain circumstances when you're in a visual display and you can provide the best five or the closest 10 or 15 choices. I think voice is really causing this to be a major, to challenge this whole overall point because you really have to have the one best answer and it has to be the right answer. Mm -hmm. So in many cases, I think that's what's been a real accelerant. Data in the past has been an area where execs would say, yeah, we know it's a problem, but I'm gonna go spend money on breaking the next new artist instead, or I'm gonna overinvest in advertising or other areas and try to get by with it. I think what we're seeing right now is that that's become that's, that has not become a tenable point. Yeah. 
also to add to that, uh, for independence, AudiSense, Hive, um, Superphone are also some really great apps for independence. Um, and an interesting thing for the reason why independents don't really get access to a lot of the information that they need is because bargaining power for data really resides within this, the distribution component. So since independents don't actually distribute their own music, uh, that kind of negates a lot of their bargaining power to get access to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything to add, Day, on your end, or? Yeah, for me, um, at Tune Registry, at least, we look at three categories of the industry: you know, majors, independents, and then DIY musicians. Um, DIY musicians are rarely talked about in, in this conversation. Um, when you talk about independent artists, like Adele's an independent artist. Is that the same thing as a DIY musician, right? Um, so there's independents who have a team around them who can be playlist strategists and you know. You know, digital new media teams or or whatnot or whatnot. If you're an independent label aff affiliated with a major label from the distribution side, but we primarily focus on DIY musicians, and they don't have the time to use all these tools, right? There's a lot of amazing tools that are out there. Um, you mentioned a few. There's a, there are a couple other ones out there. DIY musicians simply don't have the time, so that also impacts access, right? They might actually have access to some of these tools, but they don't have the time to, to use them. But then the next question I think you mentioned earlier is what do you do if, when you have access to it anyway? Um, like what kind of insights or what kind of strategies can you build when you have access? And is, is too much access a hindrance in, in a way? Um, so it's a lot of questions, right? And it, depend, it depends on the, uh, the creator and the teams around them. Um, Dave, could you pull the string a little more on too much access being a hindrance? Because I yeah, think that's, so, that's interesting. Great. So, I mean, we talk about data, which is a big word, because what data we're talking about, we don't deal with consumption data, marketplace data, right? So streams, who's your followers, what countries, um, what's happening. We deal with kind of the underground data, publishing splits, what's the metadata in regards to a track, what are the you know track credits, um, so there's all these different layers of data that that marketing le level da data, you know, how what are the metrics that worked in a particular marketing campaign? How did that drive streaming? Who were the consumption profiles? How does that help you identify, you know, the re the re recordings? How do you match up to compositions? And then ultimately, how do you pay out an artist? So there's all these layers of data, and if you're an independent artist or a DIY musician, that can be very overwhelming, right? Um, having access to all that layer, all those layers. And then not knowing really um, on a granular level, you know, what does this really mean, and how does this impact my business from a long, a long-term perspective, or how do I even respond to getting information about this, you know, whatever that information may be. And I think the challenge that we face at Tune Registry, because we answer all the support questions, is trying to educate, you know, creators on what these things mean in the first place, um, like the, a particular metric. And you mentioned a metric earlier, which I thought was interesting, was the uh, was it the rate of the rate of followers and playlists or something the change the rate of change mm -hmm. which yeah. i thought was interesting the, the rate of collections so yeah. on spotify if you're listening to a song and then you click the little add sign and you add that song to um your saved list or to a playlist that is a signifier of engagement so that is um, arguably more important than a stagnant stream because you can stream a song and then walk away from your computer. You can, you know, it, do, it doesn't necessarily mean you've engaged with that. So when you mentioned that earlier, we had our, at our talk, I, you know, for me that was very enlightening because I think that's very important. I think, like you said, versus just a stream. Um, but how do you communicate that to a DIY musician, right? So, like, what do they do with that information? So that's why I mean it can be a hindrance um, potentially. But at the same time, we're also um, 
a champion of, well, we still want access to our data, whether we know how to use it or not. We don't want to not have access to it. So that's the, that's the balancing act, I think. So is the challenge really simplifying for the DIY, just focus on the do-it-yourself, making an incredibly complex ecosystem uh, a ton simpler so that you can be smarter, focus on your creative, and let like a platform or other platforms um, <laughs> kind of level up the playing field a little bit between the big boys and girls? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there's a lot of great platforms like Nextbook Sound and, yes. you know, Chartmetric and Sound Charts and so forth and so forth that are creating really, um, you know, kind of easy to use um, interfaces and, and access to data, I think, is, is, is very useful to DIY musicians. Um, but, I mean, I don't think it's ever going to be, you know, a fixed issue. It's always going to be an issue because you have musicians of different levels in terms of expertise when it comes to data mm -hmm. and understanding the business side of it. Um, but sure. I, th I think the, the real disparity is between, um, you know, an independent artist that actually has a team because they're affiliated with a, um, an established independent label versus an independent artist um, that effectively doesn't, you know, have a team. Um, so, and, and the last thing I'll uh, talk, say is, you mentioned uh, once again, Christian, in regards to the transfer of data, which gives you the power to get more data, right? If you can deliver data to a DSP, you generally have more bargaining power to, to get access to data. And one of the challenges that we see is a lot of the aggregators, uh, smaller aggregators, um, don't um, require as much data as a bigger distributor. Um, therefore, they don't deliver as much data to, or as far as metadata to a DSP, uh, which will impact, well, has a, tons of, a lot of impact in terms of discoverability, searchability, yeah. um, moral, you know, moral rights in terms of track credits. Uh, so there's a lot of issues that smaller aggregators, um, it's, not, you know, it's not important to them because their job is to deliver a sound recording and receive a master royalty stream for it. They're not, they don't really necessarily care about are we going to help the sound recording match to a composition so that there's a you know, section 115 uh, NOI delivered to the right place. Um, it's, it's more just we can get this out onto Apple, iTunes, or to Spotify in the next couple of days, and all the other stuff doesn't matter. And, to, that, to that last point, yeah. Yeah, I think what's been really, really encouraging is the amount of investment in rights management that we've seen over the last, I'd say, 9 to 18 months has been really encouraging because it has been a huge challenge being able to stitch together composition to the recording and being able to wade through all the different rights and credits level data that's been kept in different zones and try to figure out ultimately what is the right thing at the right time. I think that the famous example there being one of them was, was the Kendrick Lamar rap on the Taylor Swift song. If that's there, there's a credit. If, there, if it's not there, there's not. You need some pretty deep fingerprinting to figure out at a consumption level, you know, whether that was the case or not. I want to go back to rights, but to, to add to that too, if you're trying to get a sense of like data in the music industry, it's really helpful to go outside of industry and to look at other industries and how they're using data. So in my mind, one of the best examples is Netflix. And when you break it up kind of, um, data into four different sections, you get content, distribution, consumption, and measurement. And so to quickly, Dave, go back to what you were saying in terms of independence having to distribute their music through other distributors, and so they're kind of forgoing their bargaining power to get access to data. There are certain companies that are trying to uh, 
mold those different components together like content and distribution. So give the power to distribute their own content to content owners. So Evera, for example, is a company out of Germany, is a white label distribution company that if you can operate Pro Tools as an artist, you can distribute your music to over 120 DSPs. So there are these different companies coming out that are trying to um, m like mold together content distribution or distribution and, and uh, consumption. And by consumption, I mean where the consumption of music actually occurs, so the streaming platform itself. That's great. Um, before we continue, uh, I meant to, this, to do this at the beginning, but could you raise your hand if you are a DIY artist, if you identify as one? Okay. And then if you work at a label, could you raise your hand? Okay. Um, if you run a rights tech startup, if you work in the rights space? Okay. Um, any other music startup that deals with data? That's a very vague <laughs> question, but okay. Everybody, everybody <laughs> raise your hands. Anyone, anyone that Get I missed? Involved. I'm just getting a... One guy on a banjo. <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't promote. Okay, that's great. It's a really good mix. Um, great. Okay, so my next question, also staying on the sort of higher level business strategy angle, um, it's about how labels can have a competitive advantage. So um, after a certain level, like all the majors are getting to a certain extent, all the same data from all the DSPs. They're getting like the same, they're using all the same platforms, so they're getting the same types of data. And so the, the advantage is how you then use that data to market your artists or to grow your artists. Um, Kristen, I'd love if you could start with this and if you could share your thoughts on um, how labels can maybe establish a better advantage, given, given that um, a lot of them are getting a lot of the same data. Sure. Um, well, one of the best ways that I like to talk about it is to, again, go out of industry. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, right now, if you have access to the information you need, how do you, um, how do you get what you want out of it? Um, so I, I think that the dating industry, actually online dating is one of uh, the most indus uh, interesting industries when it comes to specifically creating their algorithms to connect one per to connect you with a potential loved one. And in my mind, that's connecting an artist to fans. So that's the parallel that I see. Um, and there was this really interesting story. Some of you might know about how a woman was trying to break the online dating code. Um, her name was Amy Webb. So she amassed 72 data points of her perfect man, everything from tall to Jewish to athletic to even his appreciation of things. It was really important that her man had appreciation of a good spreadsheet. Um, she then uh, took all of these data points and she gave them a score, 1 to 100. She then created a scoring system. If her man scored 600 points, she'd go on, uh, she'd have an e email exchange back and forth, 950 points, they would have a, a phone call, 1,500 points, she'd actually go on a date with him. Only, only problem was is that she was seeing all these amazing men, but they weren't liking her back because she hadn't analyzed the competition. She hadn't looked at similar artists. What are similar artists within her stage, within her specific genre, doing? Um, so then she created a crawler. She crawled the top... Uh, top profiles, she looked at the length of text on their profile, she looked at their tone, she looked at their pictures. It's the same if you're an artist, you go to someone's social media page, and you look at the certain things that they do visually, it's, it's important. Um, she ended up creating the number one dating profile uh, site, or dope profile on the site. She met a guy who scored, I think, at maybe 975 points, turns out she had really high standards. Um, and then they went on a date, they got engaged, 
they got married, they had a kid. So um, that was my long-winded way of saying that that is an example of uh, a, you know, within the realm of machine learning, how do you uh, create a structural way of identifying your fan? Um, there was a, I was actually at the CD Baby conference in Chicago a while ago, and there was a woman, a woman specifically talking about, uh, she was on Beyonce's team at one point, and she was saying that Beyonce's fans are main fans, super fans are females between 27 and 34, and they buy Huggies because they are good mothers. So it really like goes down to you know uh, innate characteristics and your I interests and your uh, attributes. You can really um, understand who your fan is. So you know if you can create a scoring system and say if my fan scores this amount, I'm going to spend X on this marketing. If my fan scores uh, scores 900 points, I'm going to spend more on this. So so it's really um, about taking that uh, specific granular information, understanding who your friends are or who your fans are, and then mitigating the costs. Uh, because right now I feel like we're just still blindly spending uh, marketing dollars when there really is a more educated, informed way to do it based on who's consuming your music. And those, those actionable insights are the thing that we spend proportionally so little time talking about, yeah. but that's where we're all trying to go. And I think that's one of the real keys here that we've seen is that we're getting closer in certain circumstances. I think one of the stats I saw that A&R spending is somewhere in the 18% range. And I saw a recent slide that outlined other industries for what our research and development and similar type of investment is. And music is the highest mm -hmm. against pharmaceuticals, yeah. against other out-of-market out of uh, type of examples. Like two or three so, so we've got this data, we've got this rights data and some credit data, that's getting lost along the way. We have a separate bucket of data for search and discovery. Again, a many-to-many -to -many problem. We've got many different consumption platforms where that search and discovery data is being brought in. And then we've got a third set of insights that are, of course, making it really difficult for us to complete the loop and then go do smarter things to be able to better uh, merchandise who those artists and who those uh, musicians might be. Uh, the short answer is I don't have the solution for you in the next seven minutes, but I think I do see a lot of different areas that are lining up really nicely. We're hearing for the first time in many cases where folks from the label and publishing side are really looking at the search and discovery scenario and know, need to know what type of mood, what genre, what specifics the music is coming from. And similarly on the insights, I know the the Nielsen Music 360 report came out last week for the US, and uh, we look at discovery, and where is discovery really happening? It's still happening in a lot of the same places, and it's still growing. It's radio, it's from your friends, and it's music on TV, movies, and commercials. You know, how are there places, whether it's with sync or with other social strategies to kind of build into that? Mm -hmm. I, I want to build on what, what both uh, Scott and Kristen have been saying, and, but come back to one Part that Kristen noted it's so it's about looking across others so if you're looking at and promoting your artist or your A&R and who's gonna break and what should I invest in um, the part about looking across to other artists to even other industries I just heard um, and connecting those dots all about the connections scoring and relating um, I that part we're seeing, um, I think, a breadth of uh, interest from the industry at large looking across, not just me, 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 what do I want, how can I promote, 
but more what are others. So we mentioned the mood, the styles, settings, but also looking across other industries and building connections. And then the last piece Scott highlighted, which is uh, I think an interesting one about the the 360 experiences emerging. So whether it's uh, music videos, huge discovery, or whether it's in film, TV, I'm sure that there was a slight bump when Gu Guardians of the Galaxy came out, uh, maybe, on some artists, and then related artists. So if you look at some of that trend information, it's quite, quite interesting how increasingly our experiences are spanning across a whole set of spectrum, and to be able to look across that and then make decisions on your, your scoring, your standards, and things like that, and where to promote, and, and maybe where not to promote. And linking it all together can make catalogs spike. Guardians of the Galaxy playlists, there were even users who created Guardians, Guardi yes. uh, Guardians of the Galaxy playlists that weren't the original uh, from Hollywood Records or from Spotify that were getting, you know, making thousands of dollars monthly yes. ju just based on, you know, putting that name as, as the playlist. So playlists are an interesting thing as well in terms of promoting music. And, and that's an example where something may be very ephemeral so interests across, so the Guardians of the Galaxy, um, some creates this, this thing with that name and it becomes an eph ephemeral, it's trend, you get uh, a certain bump for a certain period of time, you may have a, a, a fall off. And that's an example where you wanna detect the trends, you wanna connect the dots, and then if I'm, uh, I think large or small, or, or DYI, I wanna take advantage of that uh, connection and, and that trending and that spike and and leverage it to to whatever my whether I'm DY or I'm a large label with a huge back catalog. Great, um, Dave. My next question is for you. Um, so, in preparing for this panel, you brought up this concept of minimum viable data, which I found really interesting. And this is more of an infrastructural MVP. question. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so you already talked about this in terms of how different distributors. There's so many out there for indie and DIY artists, but they don't have all the same standards. And even like at the higher, like major level, like you have the Open Music Initiative um, based out of Berkeley, and um, you also have the DDEC standard that's being developed, but they're still both different. Like there doesn't really seem to be one unified standard. So uh, I'd love to hear like your take on one, I guess whether there, there will ever be one unified standard, and two, if not, what are some of the obst key obstacles that need to be overcome, and is there anything that people in this room can do in the short term rather than just waiting for like agreement? Yeah, so for Duo Registry, you know, we're agnostic in a sense where we work with a number of data partners on the music rights side and the metadata side delivering uh, data. Um, and whereas we collect about 200 data points per track, you know, none, no one of our partners actually collects all the data points that we collect. So we see that there's segmentation in terms of what data do people want based on, you know, what they're doing in their particular business. Um, but then the other issue is how we deliver that data. Um, so there's DDEX, there's CWR, there's EBR, there's, X, yes, there's CSV files still happening, there's XML feeds, there's JSON files we're delivering. So Probably there's no... Taxes too. Yeah, there's, so there's... there's, there's um, and, and, and it's necessary, right, because not every, not every partner that we have, um, you know, is a huge data company like TiVo and Gracenote that's powering all these apps and third parties. Some of them are smaller um, or just using the data for their own uh, businesses. Uh, but... 
because I don't, you know, I, I don't, there's no real standard. I mean, I, I, people are adopting GDEX because it is a great way to um, you know, deliver um, and communicate uh, um, you know, between machines and deliver um, some standard of, of, of content. Uh, but even in GDEX, it depends on what standard you're using and then are you using the updated standard or, or, the, or the last year standard. So, um, and then you have various consortiums that, that are working on their own standards of metadata. Um, you know, Open Music Initiative, um, there's, there's, you know, ASCAP and BMI just announced their partnership of, of, of kind of joining um, um, their catalogs and uh, so, and then we, I just had a conversation last week with PRS for Music and they have ICE and that's a whole other thing that we're dealing with. Uh, so I don't think there's going to ever be a global metadata standard ever. I just don't think it's ever going to happen because there are so many different stakeholders focusing on different parts of the music, whether it's just the composition or the sound recording side or data that's going to impact consumption. Uh, and they're not necessarily talking to each other, you know, in, in the same manner. And then you have all these different kind of um, uh, overlaps of, of, of partners and, and, and teams. So and for, in one way, that's great for Tune Registry because we know that we can support every standard um, and therefore work with everyone. But it's for the music industry as a whole. You know what does that mean? You know, uh, there's 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 some organizations coming together to make it easier to, to exchange data, but then they become this isolate isolated kind of you know, community as well. Okay, you have nine music rights organizations in that little group. You have another eight over here in that group. There's three in this particular group. They're exchanging data, but not between each other. So it's still an issue. That's where the that's where the common ID or the fingerprint has to come in. And then that's because another issue, right? So which through. one is the common ID, right? Is it the ISRC code? Is it the ISWC. you know there's there's ISWCs, there's ISNIs, there's IPNs, yeah. there's we have we take all these codes, but then not all of our partners want them. Well, right? I think so. it really comes down to tracking it, and I think you know as people get more integrated with blockchain, and you know the the major thing with that is you can see. All of the transactions, there's a just a really uh, visible transaction history. So, you know, I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to that. So, and I know a bunch of companies trying to tackle that uh, not exact thing. So, fingers crossed on this side of the table. But it, it, <laughs> just to build on, I think one the hope part is the marketplace is going to decide it out. If you want to be discovered, you want to monetize it, you want to promote, you're going to need to actually have certain minimum data. Um, so I think the marketplace is going to, over time, solve that with consumption and opportunity. Now, with that said, I think there's a huge challenge as media moves from music to video to digital first to all of your mashup EDM. So as, as new forms of media are being created and you're crossing over to uh, advertising, so jingles, um, all kinds of stuff. What is the minimum viable? It changes for the industry. If you ask that same question of the film industry, um, it's different. So they'll talk about cue sheets, offsets, things like that. That's quite a bit different if you're talking uh, in the music space. And, um, and similarly, if you're talking about for advertising. So there's, there's like worlds coming together where uh, music is used, um, entertainment's used in, in multiple forms of this. And so uh, everybody's struggling with that one because it's very different for different industries. I, I, I can speak for TiVo. We power uh, in the advertising space, in television, and in music, and even games and books, by the way, too. And they all have different IDs. 
They all have different minimum viable fields that they need. And in some cases, what's interesting is some of those fields don't even overlap. And we're talking about the same uh, song, recording, artist, and uh, different industries have different needs. So I, there's a little bit of bringing them all together. And I, I think that's, um, that'll be a while, long while. So do you think, um, would that be a piece of advice you would give to labels and artists in terms of preparing for that future? Or do you think that this is a bigger priority to sort of fix the problem in the music industry itself? Well, I think the fir there's a multi-pronged step. So the fir first off is if you have a huge catalog of assets, so a large, large label or an indie, um, I think cleaning up your back catalog now more than ever is, is valuable from a promotion, from uh, monetization, discovery. So that's that's kind of step one, where a large amount of uh, catalogs out there really are are, are not very good. They're pr they're pretty uh, either dirty or missing or have conflicting information in it. Then I think there's the uh, part about how can I connect that and link that to other media. So um, my music video, or we mentioned Guardians of the Galaxy. I mentioned that build on. How do I connect my back catalog, my assets, to something new and current, a new work that's been created? So I think all of those pieces will be clean up your core, um, work through your rights, rights attribution, um, make sure that you're able to connect it to other things, and then I always say tongue-in-cheek, make sure you can connect it to multiple IDs. I, I don't, even blockchain doesn't really solve that. It's a pointer back to data, but I offer if it's pointing back to nothing, that's not very useful. So even blockchain, by linking multiple things together in an authoritative way, you have a community that'll agree or disagree with that new assertion. The question I always ask is, where are they getting the core data to agree or disagree with that assertion? So when you go through an Ethereum and you assign a new contributor or a, a somebody featuring or related or follower, how does the industry decide, yeah, I agree, or mm. Mm, that's a typo, that's wrong. Anyone have anything, anything to add to that? Or? I'm going to need a new question because I lost the question there. <laughs> um, so, so sort of related to that. I didn't mean thinking. that meanly. Oh, yeah. I just, there was like four things. And we made it 37 <laughs> minutes without bringing up blockchain, which was either <laughs> the best or the worst thing we've done today. That's There's really gonna actually be a pretty good. I, yeah. uh, I did check 37. that. And um, you know, just, just, to, just to answer on that, I think, I think there are some really, really smart folks working on solutions with blockchain that are gonna be incredibly impressive. But we're not even at a crawl stage, we're barely rolling over and blockchain to me is at least a jog, you know, maybe a run. So I think there are, you know, to, to MJ's point on a lot of these different areas, there is definitely a lot of need and probably not the best um, conference conversation around cleaning up back catalogs, but there is a lot of data hygiene and just, just common standards that need to be uh, addressed. And I think we just need some coherence. We, we know we've got a rights and a credits issue. We know we have a search and discovery issue. And we know we have a consumption and insights issue. And we just have to tie those three together as much as possible, as opposed to try to nail it and make it perfect at each spot. Because I think that's part of what got us here to begin with. So we're, we're, we're interpreting data or working with data in three different zones there. Great. Um, I want to go back earlier to something that we've touched briefly upon um, regarding playlisting data, which um, is what, some, uh, some of the most, most immediately accessible data to artists of various career stages. Um, Kristen, I'd love if you could start with us and talk about some uh, smart ways to 
market to playlists or to use data coming from playlists? You mentioned like uh, looking at saved collection rate. Is there anything else that? Right. Um, well, so in terms of where the market has gone uh, with playlists, all of the majors have acquired third-party playlist companies, so companies that own a couple hundred playlists. Um, and you want to take an old-school perspective of it. It's just owning a lot of online radio stations. Um, so there are multiple ways to capitalize on playlists to promote your song, um, and that's getting your playlist noticed. So a really amazing thing about playlists is it uh, really follows uh, seasons and holidays, um, you know, economical and uh, political trends. So pride playlists have, you know, there's been a spike uh, specifically in pride Pride playlists uh, based on external events that have occurred since January. Um, Spotify is great in terms of taking uh, outward things that are occurring and putting playlists to uh, to address that. Um, also, promoting uh, playlists and simply just changing the title of the playlist. For example, uh, adding the word summer to like summer hip hop or uh, summer Latin workout actually will cause a spike in those playlists because you're associating what's happening right now to certain playlists. And if you own a playlist with a lot of followers on it, uh, you, you wanna get it higher in search. Um, obviously though, getting your playlist uh, noticed is still a challenge. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of a, a border uh, in terms of getting your playlist on Spotify Browse, um, but if, if you can manage that, those are uh, different ways to kind of promote a playlist. And on the data side of it, uh, if you're looking at uh, to gauge whether or not your playlist is growing. Again, engagement metrics. So you don't want to look at necessarily the static follower count of the playlist or uh, the streams. You kind of want to uh, consider follower change. So the rate of follower growth, that's uh, it's really uh, valuable. I, I found a valuable metric in terms of uh, gauging whether or not you're going to spend more marketing on one playlist versus another. What was the uh, the Mary Meeker Internet Trends? I think had 41 artists on average a week that uh, people are listening to on Spotify because there's more discovery there, and I mm -hmm. think that's two to three x other platforms, or at least other on-demand platforms. It's pretty it's pretty impressive. I mean, I don't think we can really even overstate that playlist programming, whether it's editorial and somebody's putting something together on a theme, or whether it's uh, activity-based, cooking, uh, workout, etc. Is, is really driving a lot of great consumption, which is, which is fantastic. Right, exactly. And whether or not you're marketing playlists or you're marketing in an individual track, really what it comes down to is being timely. Um, there really is a 24 to 48 hour window that you need to react to the reaction that's happening on your track or on your playlist and understanding who is reacting and where they are to then apply that knowledge to um, if you do have access to uh, putting ads on Spotify, targeting it there or uh, using it just on Google searches or Facebook advertising. But really that, that window of time is so utterly important. Um, and 
the and it also you can look at it based on the stage of your artist if you have a very brand new artist really you have maximum 24 hours to react off of the reaction occurring for that uh, track if you're a, a larger artist you have a little bit a larger window of time why why do you say max 24 hours just because the world is moving that quickly and well, I just have high standards, so you know you <laughs> you probably have a little bit more time. But but I I, I really I, I've I've seen um, I, I've you know about a year ago I had a uh, manager come to me and uh, the artist had released a track and it had gone viral, which is an absolutely amazing opportunity. Yeah. But he was now saying okay great now we have to plan a release schedule that's going to start in a month and I'm just like you know by that time she's a brand new artist you, 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 the engagement's going to die down people are not going to be looking for her uh, at, the, at the rate that they are right now so it, it's more about uh, especially if you have some sort of release schedule in mind you know having your sturdy dates whether or not it's a, a talk show or you know a Spotify ad and then you know in between that being really really reactive to the consumption that's occurring and um, and that's really when it comes down to um, being able to access granular data uh, zip code data like knowing exactly where if I'm a if I'm a brand new artist and I know that I have fans in New York that doesn't really help me, um, but if I know that I have a ton of fans in uh, Greenwich Village, maybe they're all students that go to NYU, that's all of a sudden something that I can play with and that I can use and integrate into my marketing campaign. So the more specific you can get, the better. Just to build on something with Kristen saying too, and that, that's, to me, that's right away, once you detect a trend, whatever it is, big or small, let's go with the viral for a second, is to be able to quickly connect to and say, okay, so I found some of my followers, they're particularly interested in a mood, a theme, um, they come from, um, or they're listening, actually is from a very different sets of, uh, of other artists, so how can I connect quickly to others and write uh, authentic from storytelling, on, on my my Facebook or my fan page, to articles, things like that, to quickly, even if I've got a month away in a release, I, although I challenge on that one. Mm -hmm. But anyway, to connect the dots, so to keep the engagement flowing along and maybe get some more bump until, I guess, your next release, if it really is a month away. Well, to go another uh, cross-industry example, BuzzFeed uh, created what they called a viral lift. So instead of uh, looking, uh, instead of valuing a click on an article, um, they value a share because that almost guarantees that the person read it and valued it enough to share it with a friend. So then if you take it one step further, um, they look at the rate of shares within the first two weeks of that article being released. So they really want to see a spike in shares within the first um, uh, uh, time period. And we, have, we really haven't done a good job, or it's, it's a difficult challenge for, to be able to track how people share music, right? Because mm -hmm. so often it's me texting, hey, you need to go. And sometimes I'll grab the Spotify link, or sometimes I'll have, but more often than not, I'd say, just check out this artist, or hey, do you right. want to go to a show? But nobody gets the benefit of figuring out the why there, going back to the insights and, you know, what happened, you know, the consumption happened, but how do we drive the insights? Well, and that's, yeah. that's sharing, I think, from a, from a discovery perspective is just another part that we're going to have to get a little better at. Well, I think a part of it, too, is the actual awareness of the specific data points that you need. Um, 
and specifically as an independent artist, you know, you can you can piece together all of the startup applications and, and bring them together in, in order to kind of create a little, your own miniature platform of, of what works and what doesn't. But in reality, you need like a larger governing body, uh, you know, advocating for access to granular information on the behalf of independent content owners and independent labels. Um, and specifically, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, collection data and uh, replays and you know and and when you're really talking about um, you know data and what to do with it it's really important to understand that who has access to the data and the motivations of the company really really impact how they use the data itself for example Spotify came out with this uh, great marketing activation uh, which was called find them first and so they uh, Obviously, they want to take non-paying subscribers to paying subscribers. So this marketing activation was uh, identified consumers that had, had been early adopters to specific, uh, specific artists. For ex so for example, I was an early adopter to Zoo. And, um, and they really just made up a filter, an algorithm saying, I, I, I identify you as an early adopter. If you've listened to the song five times in one month within, uh, from the track, be, from the first track ever being released. I'm just, you know, I'm not sure if that was the exact thing, but that's kind of like the idea around it. But they're not, but so Spotify is using that initiative to, you know, take non-paying subscribers to paying subscribers and to try and engage their clients. That exact type of thing, if you go on the content owner side, would be in perfect to, as a stage one artist, to really lower your marketing budget and focus on those particular fans. Mm -hmm. so, so that's why it's just important to start creating a conversation around uh, access and motivation and data in that sense. That's great, thank you. Um, we have around 10 minutes left, so I'd love to open it up for audience questions. Does anyone have any? Please raise your hand. This is a specifically a question for Kristen, but love to hear everyone else's opinion. Um, from all of the data that you've seen and worked with, who are the most valuable consumers from a music perspective, whether how much they listen, whether they convert from free to paying subscribers, other things they purchase, just in terms of psychographic, demographic, age, anything? I'm just kind of curious in that. Um, well, so I don't know if you've seen an app called Superphone, um, but uh, I, they don't really use streaming data, but they more so are able to, it's kind of an address book of your fans and they're able to identify, you can make in, it's a SMS based app. Um, so the ease of access is, is really amazing. And you can actually make purchases in the app and um, you, they, you can, the back end on the artist side, you can break up your fans in terms of how much they've spent on you, whether or not, not that's in merch or uh, ticket sales um, again, they don't have streaming data, but, but so, so that would be an interesting, um, I, I think a valuable way to um, segment your com consumer base. Uh, more so if you're able to tie their purchasing patterns to uh, their, their streaming um, uh, engagement and, and behavior. I, I think a really interesting um, area there too is conversion. Like how do you take the fans that are 
um, replaying your music within the first week because they just had a breakup and your song is touching their soul? How do you how do you um, reach out to them in a way that will you know get them to your show? Just to build on, I, I do think it depends on, as they say, beauties in the eye of the beholder. So if you're live into the live events, you're going to look for the value for you would be uh, individuals, consumers that you convert that do a lot of the experiential. So live experiences would be hugely valuable. Conversely, if you're an advertiser, you actually might want the free free to play uh, crowd so you can reach them where you have a subscription base that, well, you can't reach. So so little, as you can kind of see, depend, it depends on um, who you are, what would be the most valuable. Um, I think there's, and there's a wide range where you're coming from depending in, in the ecosystem where you, what, what, your, uh, what your business is. Um, I'm, this is more from like a curator than an artist perspective, but just one thing that I've noticed. Um, so I'm on like Spotify and YouTube all the time, and Spotify obviously doesn't give data to third-party curators because they're like direct competitors, right? But if you're a third-party curator on YouTube, you're, you're, you're just, you fend for yourself. So you get all the data that YouTube, like YouTube is not in the business of curation, so, so they can give a lot more data to you. Um, so in terms of like valuable customers, I find that YouTube channels they find a lot more value like staying on YouTube. And then like, they go on Spotify for like the sort of radio level exposure, going back to something that Kristen said. I had a question about uh, something about access to data that Kristen touched on and a few of y'all talked about. So with um, distributors getting consumption data, there's just so much more detailed and granular than everyone else. And with a few big players in the industry controlling so much of distribution, uh, Kristen, you mentioned like a higher level advocate or consortium coming together to support Indies access to that type of data. Like what does that actually look like to you? Like where might that actually come from to give independent artists and labels more access to that consumption data? Because like what's happening right now through basically the majors is not super promising on like giving people access to that data. And I don't know where else that stuff might come from, but like I don't see any other way to compete on the same level with the people that do have access to that data either. Um, well, in, in my mind, it would be uh, uh, independent associations coming together um, with, one, uh, with one goal to then get access on behalf of um, independence. I think also maybe that's also what Title was also trying to do in a sense, advocating for, for artists. Um, so I don't really have the answer yet, but in my mind, it would be independent associations coming together. I don't know. Like Merlin and CI in them? Or like yes. Yeah. yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. Sounds like a political, not a technical question, right? Completely, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't have the sophistication to do that either. So there's a lot of components to what this actually looks like, so I'm just kind of mining your heads for. You're, you're, uh, there's companies like Buzz Angle, who's here at the show, that are beginning uh, to, to do that. Um, and I say the beginnings of that, but th those would be examples. I think the making sure that the data is provided to others that can build that that platform that you re referred so that if you're a DYI, you're also not hiring like 10 engineers at barrier prices, so you just spent millions of dollars, um, ain't gonna happen, to build your insights platform. You might be able to leverage uh, more of a SaaS space. And I, I, I think we'll see a lot more of that, um, but it's, it's still back from like Merlin and and, and writing so, it into so into agreements. Good question, though. I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah. 
So part of, I, think it's, I, think, I think it's an interesting <laughs> point that you just made because what we're talking about is a value chain is breaking apart here. So things that might have historically sat with a distributor may actually move out and be their own business. And so you talked about buzz angle. When you think about access to this data and you think about what that looks like, do you, do you see that as a viable commercial business? You know, are there, is there, are there enough customers in the market to support building something like that? Who can actually pay? Right? Short answer would be yes. Um, if if we opened on here and we said it's data, 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 and data-driven discovery, even more convenience and more monetization, I think there's a lot more to go in the in the music industry. We're seeing a lot of growth today. So yes, I, I think the, we're seeing market expansion. One, um, and then the other is the need to, and as Scott highlighted just earlier, you know, take pieces of the puzzle, the four pieces. So whether it's measurement. Um, whether it's um, all of this, this transactional types of information. We talked about the data and cleaning and discovery experiences. So break them apart into pieces. And as the market expands, um, to me, uh, yes, there's opportunity there for commercial viable entities to, to thrive in that space and to offer something useful for, for all of us, for the, the whole ecosystem. Yes. Yeah, going all the way back, being able to simplify and being able to stitch together the rights and credits, the search and discovery, and then the consumption with insights. Those, of all, those are all very complex challenges that are all being solved in independent islands, but that flow, what Fred mentioned, is definitely gonna happen. And that's already, there's already a lot of steps in, in place going in that direction, so it is getting better. We've seen the volume and the massive amounts of data has caused a lot of challenge in this as well, but there's gonna be simplification. So other than Buzz Angle, who's so Nielsen, Nielsen Music Connect is, is the industry standard there, and that's what's basically capturing every radio play, every stream, every CD purchased, every single place you can be picked up. And those are some of those areas that, from an insights perspective, are really being used as the platform to be able to figure that out. All right, we have time for one more question in the back. Two more. There. Yeah, I have a question as a DIY musician. Uh, you mentioned those codes. The, you know, the only code that I'm familiar with is the ISRC because CD Baby gives me one forever. And I keep putting that every time I register with all the different uh, royalty agencies. But is there a, a way to find out a list, a website somewhere, or some it's kind just of simulator? Of but all we the could, different I'll codes. go over all of them with you. Yes. Meet so me in the corner. Idea. About 10 minutes. Good idea. So you need to basically now label all every song with lots more codes and how it happens. It actually is possible. I'll break it down. Well, meet me in the corner. Okay. In the room it's at that the complicated, huh? The, the tune registry. Oh hey, Sherry. We'll, I know, we'll take care of it. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention at the very beginning, I've been coming to these events for about 12 years now in music tech. This is the best the industry, best shapes the industry's been in for so long. So while we just spent a good chunk of time together bemoaning all the different problems, consumption's up 40% year on year. We've got brand new platforms like smart speakers that are causing people to hear a whole bunch of new music. The expectations, and I'm, I'm old enough to have the teenage kids, and the expectations they have around discovering new music is in such a different place than when basically I had a cassette and I just wore that thing out for six months until I saved another 12 bucks to go down to the warehouse and buy another cassette. So I just wanted to end on an up note. Thank you, Scott, yeah. for keeping us on of, the challenges or opportunities. There's a lot of work to be done, but um, yeah. it's it's really fun place to be right yeah. now. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Yes. All right. On that note, I think we'll end there. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.